Hello and welcome. You've joined us on Search for Truth and it's great to have your company. Thanks for tuning in. We've talked number seven today in our studies from the Apostle Paul's Bible letter to the church in Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians. And our Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, takes up Paul's thoughts concerning the Christians of Corinth and advice and uh, some issues concerning the conduct of uh, their married lives. So here's Brian to tell us more. Thanks, John. Recently, I found myself being challenged to clarify the Bible's stance on premarital sexual relations using only the text of the New Testament. If the translation, sexual immorality, is brought into question as to whether it specifically includes premarital sex, then I found myself turning to the early verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for help. There we read, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. It's worth pausing there to check the meaning, I suggest. Some versions bring it out more clearly than the New American Standard version I'm using at this particular point. To touch here, in verse 1, is a euphemism for intimate contact or relations which the Bible only legitimises between a couple who are married to each other, which leads us into the second verse. Each man having his own wife is tactful shorthand for having sexual relations with her, and vice versa. This interpretation is fully confirmed by the verses which follow, which we'll now read. The husband must fulfil his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this, I say, by way of concession, not of command. It would appear that some of the women in the Corinthian church were depriving their husbands. From some other clues we may pick up from this letter later on, it may seem as if a seriously distorted view of spirituality was at the root of such attitudes. As Paul shows, depriving one another of sexual relations is not the Lord's counsel for couples who are married to each other. And in fact, deprivations of that kind were leading some in the Church of God at Corinth into gross error by promoting the seeking of gratification outside of their marriages. Paul did, however, concede there could be exceptions, and he instanced sexual fasting to permit more devoted prayer times. This would seem, in principle, to permit sexual abstinence for other reasons also, including family planning reasons. Abstinence from even protected relations is not shown here as the norm within a biblical Christian marriage. However, the Apostle Paul acknowledges that his instructions at this point are by way of concession, and he goes further in the verses that follow by expressing the wish that everyone was single like he found himself to be at that moment. This has no consequence for the status of these words as inspired scripture, but it does have a consequence for their authority. 
They're not normative like other scriptures, meaning they only apply if our circumstances are appropriate. And it must be acknowledged that not all are gifted for a life of singleness. Let's now allow Paul to continue. From verse 7 he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So now I finally get to the goal I was aiming at here from the beginning. Those in any state of singleness who cannot control their sexual drive have no liberty whatsoever to express it by having sexual relations outside of marriage. The Apostle Paul spells out the only options facing a single person as, number one, having self-control, or number two, getting married. Paul now turns from those in a single, possibly widowed state, to those who are married. He gives counsel for them in the next couple of verses, that's 10 and 11, and he says this, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul's inspired instruction here is in full agreement with the Lord's teaching as found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Mark 10 and verse 6 and Luke 16 and verse 18 are unambiguous, as Paul is here, that there should be no divorce and that there should certainly never be remarriage after a previous divorce of one of the prospective marriage partners. Paul says that if a wife or husband should leave, which effectively meant divorce back then, they should both remain literally without a wedding, in other words, without remarriage. At first sight, it does seem as if Matthew 19 and verse 9 is saying something different by seemingly offering an exception to the blanket ban on remarriage after divorce. It's very unfortunate that English translations have never caught up with the best modern understanding of the Greek text. An extra tiny word which Erasmus imported from a marginal note into the best available Greek text in the 16th century has since been demoted. But remarkably, this has not been reflected in a changed translation, leading to four centuries of possibly quite unnecessarily heated debate. The fact is, nowhere do the scriptures unambiguously show any exception whatsoever to the biblical counsel forbidding remarriage after a divorce by at least one of the prospective partners. The historical evidence of the first five centuries of Christianity bear this out, with virtually all leading scholars teaching no divorce, never remarriage of divorced couples, despite this at that time being revolutionary teaching. So, by now Paul's dealt with those who've been widowed and also with those who are in a marriage to another believer in the Christian church fellowship at Corinth, And now at verse 12, he moves on to tackle the situation of a believer married to someone who is unchurched. 
Specifically, he says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. These verses clarify that in cases where someone has come to the Lord, but their partner hasn't, what they have is still a totally valid marriage. The unchurched partner is still set apart to be to the believer what none other could be. What's more, the fact that one person in the marriage bond has come to Christ doesn't present a valid ground for divorce. Rather, the believer should desire to let their personal example of Christianity become persuasive under God for the other. But if the unbeliever should refuse to continue in the marriage, then the abandoned partner shouldn't feel guilty, but rather leave the matter with the God of peace. Then, in one of the many comments throughout the New Testament, which show the close, interrelated nature of all the local church communities in the first century under apostolic teaching, Paul says this is the very same teaching he gives in every place. From verse 25, Paul deals with the case of people who were still single, but were or had been anticipating a marriage at the end of a period of engagement. I think then, Paul says in verse 26, that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Here again, Paul gives us his judgment, as one who had found grace from God. His personal recommendation would be to remain undistracted in serving the Lord, but he fully accepts the right of a couple to choose to marry. In fact, this is a normal expectation, not only in society, but also in the Bible. Forbidding people from marrying is definitely not a teaching which comes from the Bible. Finally, for those whose marriage partner has predeceased him or her, Paul says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she pleases, only in the Lord. The marriage bond is not intended by God to be terminated by anything other than by the death of one of the partners. But of course, if someone's marriage partner dies, then he or she is free to remarry. In that eventuality, as in all other cases, however, we are not free to fall in love with whomever we choose. The decision to marry someone is to be influenced by honouring the Lord's will as much as by natural affection. How sad when those who have different understandings of what it means to follow the Lord go on to present confusing choices to their children, which the Lord never intended should happen. A fair summary of the Bible's teaching 
which is as much by example as it is by decree, but a fair summary of the Bible's teaching would be that the people of God are supposed to marry others belonging to the people of God. So once more I remind you of the opportunity for you to send for the booklet which accompanies this series. If you'd like a copy, write in, making sure to let us have your postal address and ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. You can order by email or by post and our contact details are as follows, so please make a note. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, it's been a privilege to enjoy your company today, and I hope you'll be able to join us for the continuation of this series next week. Until then, very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye and may God as always richly bless you. Oh.